You're listening to Agile Next, the next generation Agile talk show. I'm Daniel Gulo. And I'm Stephen Forte. Each week, we ask industry leaders to share their past experiences with Agile practices and to provide their insights into where Agile is heading to next. The show is available on SoundCloud, iTunes, and by visiting our website at www.agilenext.tv. This episode is brought to you by Applebrook Consulting and Fresco Capital. Whatever your Agile needs, Applebrook Consulting can help with training and coaching. Visit our website at www.apple-brook.com. Fresco Capital is a global venture capital firm focusing on entrepreneurs building global businesses. Visit our website at fresco.vc. Episode 32, February 2nd, 2017. So today on the show, we're talking with Al Shalloway. Al is the CEO and founder of NetObjectives. And as such, he's committed to leading the industry and learning how organizations can transition to enterprise agility with lean agile methods. He's the co-author of Lean Agile Software Development, Essential Skills for the Agile Developer, The Lean Agile Pocket Guide for Scrum Teams, and Design Patterns Explained. Al is a scaled program consultant trainer, and he specializes in consulting, training, and coaching for Lean Software, Safe, Kanban, Agile Scrum, and various other technologies. Al, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So give us a little bit of background on what prompted you to found NetObjectives and and how you initially became involved in Agile and Lean. I started programming in 1970 when I was in college. And in the 80s, I did a lot of software development in vertical applications. And I moved out to Seattle in 96, where what I thought was going to be a temporary coaching gig, uh, doing object orientation and technical coaching and i found that i liked it so instead of like forming uh another software company i decided to form a consulting company and that was 99 the birth of net objectives and it was really based on technical coaching i'd done some design pattern work by then and um pretty much that was it i was thinking we'd do technical stuff but it didn't take very long to realize that the real problem is not with the developers, even though that's where all the drama is. And in 99, actually, almost immediately after I formed that objectives, got into extreme programming, and then the next year into Scrum. And it just kept seeing that the more we looked at things, the problem wasn't where people thought the problem was. So it wasn't in, like, it wasn't with the testers, it wasn't with the developers. In Scrum, it felt that was very focused when we started it on getting the product owner and the development group together. And then we saw now even the business is a bit of an issue or how do you get different teams working together? So we had success every time we tried something new. Uh, but, but it was like when we would go into something new, like around 2003, 2004, we tried what was in that those days scale. It's kind of funny. It's like 25, 30 people seemed large. Uh, and we couldn't get scrum of scrums going. So we, we kept looking for the next thing when something wouldn't work. And I had always been in, you know, always had faith in agile methods like extreme programming and Scrum because throughout my career in the 80s, I had done things like it, but never put it together. So I, I'm not making any claim like I'd done anything like XP in the 80s, but I'd done things with automated testing at times. I had done things like test first at times. So when 
I'd heard about these techniques. I said, yeah, it makes total sense. I've done those things. And I've heard a lot of people have done this. It was just not having put it all together. So I was pretty excited and we'd have success and then we'd have difficulty. So I was always looking for the next thing. And I remember in uh, 2004, uh, Marion Tom's book on lean software came out and it was kind of like an epiphany to me and our president, Alan Chetelawada, who at the time, both of us had been struggling with, not again, nowadays it's kind of small, but in those days, 50, 100 people, uh, scrum groups seemed to be beyond what we knew how to do. And, and we just decided, hey, you know, we both had lean experience from before. I had it, ironically, in lean services, and he'd had it from lean management. And we said, yeah, why, why are we not, I mean, like, why didn't we write the book, you know, kind of thing. It was like this, this like, duh, you know. Uh, it was effective there. Why would it not be effective here? So I can still remember that conversation we had. And then we started getting into lean. And I, I really liked lean because I'd seen the success that it had had in the other work I'd done. But more importantly, the problem by this time, I was really clear, was not with the team, was not with the business, was not with the developers, was not with the testers, was not with ops. It's a systemic problem, meaning systems problem, not systemic in that it's ingrained, but all these things, how did all these things come together? And this holistic view was not present anywhere. Uh, you know, most things were bottom up, things of that nature, top down. That's, neither of those are systems thinking approaches. So it was the systems thinking that I really got, the, I guess, the bug for me around 2005. And that's when I got into Lean as a software point of view. And we started having a lot of success at scale from that point on. And uh, we would also find still problems and challenges we couldn't figure out with with the standard methods. At that time, that was mostly just Scrum. But we would figure out new techniques. Like I came up with this thing called a dynamic feature team, which is useful for groups of under 100 people when you can't have set teams for a variety of reasons with the inability to cross-train everybody or the, or the dynamics of the needs of every feature. And we would just come up with one thing after another, and these all these new techniques worked. And, and they're actually out on our website, too, by the way. If people are interested, you can search for them. But it was like, uh, wow, there's this, there's this model of lean that if you actually apply it from a principal point of view, uh, it actually works and gives you answers. So that's what got me interested in that. And, uh, you know, basically, I've just been continuing working on where that takes us. So as Kanban came out, that was a natural. Uh, I remember one of my uh, guys, actually Guy Beaver, my co-author on Lean Agile Software Development, he, he got into Kanban. He said, hey, Al, you got to check this out. This is really cool stuff. So, uh, you know, met Dave Anderson, and we eventually formed, actually we formed like the Lean Software and Systems Consortium uh, at one point, which morphed into the Lean, uh, System, uh, Lean System Society and form Lean Kanban University too, although I'm not affiliated with that anymore, because I think the overall umbrella really is is Lean. So uh, you can put pretty much everything in it, and it actually needs to be extended in some ways as well. But I've just been on this path of of trying new things, seeing what works, uh, keeping what's good, and discarding what's not. Well, I sound a little bit like Bruce Lee there, but that's a that's a good thing. <laughs> I just was thinking of what Kanban is. Well, well, I used to live in Hong Kong, so uh, Bruce Lee is near and dear to my heart. <laughs> <laughs> you know, take what's useful, throw away what's rest, keep your own. You know, it's about finding what works for you. Um, and we found what works for us. We're trying to make it work for other people now. So that's kind of 
how he got into this path. And I just think that there's, uh, there are a lot of challenges out there. And one of the challenges I think we have in the industry now is everybody's kind of touting their own thing instead of looking at what works. And that's really what we're trying to do is what works. And then we'll use things that work. You know, we find safe works really well in some places. We find, you know, Kanban works in places and scrum works in places. And you've just got to pick the best and integrate it all. And, and, um, you know, part of that is integrating some of these things. So we have this thing we call lean bond, which is basically scrum and Kanban wrapped in lean thinking. So there's, there's a lot of new stuff. We're not that, uh, in my opinion, we're, we're at the beginning of the agile journey, not at the end of the agile journey. I hear a lot of people think like we've actually done something and I, I would actually suggest we haven't done a lot except open up people's eyes. And and your story is pretty cool because it's taking a very pragmatic approach, which I which I love to hear. And it also seems because you're so open to try new things and you have a very technical background, when I'm listening to the dates and the chronological the chronological order of uh, your story, it seems to me that there were major shifts in the technology marketplace that seemed to started that seemed to influence your thinking of your agile and lean approach which then led to you coming out with um, you know, a morphed and a much different um, customized methodology. Uh, was that something that was very consciously done, or is it just something that the market pushed you on a very subtle way? Uh, <laughs> I wish I could say it was consciously done, but no, it was, it was the market. But I'll tell you why and how, and I hadn't thought about it until what you just said, and I think there's truth to that. What happens is the technology changes the dynamics of communication and needs in organizations. I'm starting more and more to appreciate Conway's law uh, about Conway's law is basically that you will build the architectures you build will reflect the organizational structure that you're working in. And I remember reading this years and years ago and thinking, well, that's interesting, but I don't know what I could do about that. Uh, you know, it was interesting, but not useful to me. I'm not saying it's not useful because now I'm saying it is useful. <laughs> You know, this is one of those things. Sometimes you read something and it's like it's like you don't notice how valuable it is. Uh, but the, but the reason I, I'm mentioning this with Conway's law is one of the real problems you have in in the uh, industry now is that you have so many monolithic structures that have been built from 20 years ago, and now you have new technologies uh, like object-oriented programming and other things uh, that would enable you to kind of break it up and do better. And things like mobile technologies, which, you know, now everything's got to be mobile. So you've, you've, you've got a lot of different demands. And the way most organizations have met these demands is just make the monolithic structure, structure bigger, which has made it tougher to, to uh, actually be agile at all. Or what I prefer, I, I, we don't really go after agile, quote unquote. We like to go after what we call business agility. How can a business respond? How can a business be agile? And uh, that's maybe another side topic to do a little later is, is the notion of what do you focus on, focusing on people or systems. And, but anyway, the point here is, is, that, is that as organizations, the organizational structure and the architecture of large-scale systems seem related to each other. Because as you're building this monolithic structure, now you want to go agile, it's hard to break up into smaller teams. So you have these really big projects, and it's one of the things that SAFE's really good at, by the way. I think it's, you can lay it on top of a structure like this, and you can actually get some improvement. The danger isn't that 
And a lot of people don't like safe. Some people do, of course. We're gold partners, so obviously we we think it's useful. Uh, if you if you just say, well, let's just fit it on and and get some improvement, you can do better with a monolithic structure with safe than without. But the idea isn't to just keep the structure. The idea is to how do you break things up into smaller pieces that can now be agile. And and a lot of people don't seem to pay attention to this. This is what I mean by by two things. One is a transition. You've got to implement these methods, but then you've really got to transform the organization to think smaller. See, lean is about smaller pieces. It's not about bigger pieces. If you've got a big piece, though, you've got to deal with the big piece. So, you know, this notion, I hear a lot of people say, oh, well, inside every 100 developer projects, a 10 developer project waiting to get out. And the answer is, you know what, that might be true, but the method to get them out is not to fire 90 people because you don't have 10 people with all the information you need working in a system that can get the job done. So the question is, how do you get those 10 people able to do that project? And then how do you get the other 90 people able to do other projects? And this is a transformation of organizations. It's not implementing, you know, uh, it's not implementing less or, or, or safe or anything. It's not an implementation issue. And that's the real challenge I think we have right now is we're, we're looking still at implementations. How do I implement this? Okay. Uh, and that's, I think, the wrong approach. It's really how do I transform organizations? How do I look at the relationship of the architecture along with the, uh, the social structure that has come up around that architecture? And then how do I, how do I kind of break up the architecture in a good way and organize the social structure in a good way. And that's Conway's law. That's what I riffed on starting with is, is Conway's law. It says those two are related, so you have to attend to both of them. So if all you're doing is attending to the social structure, that architecture is going to hold you back. If all you're doing is attending to the architecture, you're not going to change how people are behaving to build it properly. And, and this is a major problem. I mean, this is like why we're stuck, I think, is, is people aren't working on this directly. Uh, except, uh, in, I mean, there are individuals doing this. Please, I, I'm not trying to describe that that we're the only ones doing this. I know a lot of you know one-offs and two-off consultants who do this, but there's no method for this, no framework or anything. Right, right. So, Al, you've mentioned Safe a few times. Um, Safe seems to have experienced exponential growth in the past few years, but it's also drawn some very harsh criticism. So can you talk a little bit more about what led you to SAFE in the first place and what you see the benefits and challenges are to that approach? Yeah, yeah, I think it's, I think it's actually a great question because I think it's actually a, a very important topic. So one of the things, as I mentioned, we couldn't get Agile to scale with Scrum of Scrums uh, back in 2004. Believe me, we tried. I mean, you know, it's, it's funny. People who, who have come to Agile late in the game, I don't know late, but, you know, if you've been in the, if you've, you know, if, if it's like just been in Agile five years, and that's most people, uh, you know, they sometimes people say, Al, why don't you try to do some of the stuff you talk about Scrum from within the Scrum community? And I said, well, you know, I was doing that back in 2003, 2004, and when we ran into these problems and we couldn't get Scrum of Scrums to work and we found something else that did, we, and Guy and my book, and also Jim Trott was co-author, we, we actually talked about the product coordination team. This was something we were doing back in 2005, 2006. It was, uh, and then within the book, it was about that you cannot 
grow it from the bottom up. You got to be business driven. So we had like a product owner in front of the teams deciding basically cutting vertical slices across all the teams to give to the teams. And it was a holistic view of business value delivery. It wasn't teams working together, figuring out what to do because we continuously saw that teams working together from a bottom up typically didn't work unless you were an extremely functional organization. So every now and then people would point to the fact, oh, look, it worked here. And I'm saying, yeah, it worked here because they had the right culture already. They had the right management already. You're not interested in implementing. You're interested in transforming an organization. And the bottom-up approach didn't work. So we kind of developed this, not a top-down approach. See, that doesn't work either. But what I would call a value stream approach. What are you going to do from a business perspective? And when I say business perspective, of course, most of that is adding value to the customer. But it could also be lowering tech debt. It could be improving methods. It could be any of this. And we came up with this notion that you basically drive from what we called a hub. This was like an application area. And then you would take that work from the hub, distribute it to the teams in a coordinated fashion to achieve business value as quickly as possible by removing delays. By the way, this is just lean. I'm not making up anything new. Um, it may be a different way of thinking about lean than it's usually ascribed in software, but it really is you know, remove delays in your workflow. That removes the waste because that's where most of our waste comes from is delays in the workflow, delays in feedback, things like that. Uh, so we had built this thing back in like, I don't know, 2005, 2006 that actually talked about how you can do uh, drive from business value, having a hub level thing, and then the team levels, how they coordinate and this was a holistic view. And then, um, I don't know, it was around 2000. I met Dean Leffingwell in 2009. Very impressed. Uh, uh, really liked him. I liked his thought. I liked his view of, of the holistic organization. He was very much into Scrum. But uh, really appreciated Kanban when he got introduced to it. So I liked that he was open and thinking like that as well. And, um, you know, I, we just kind of followed each other a little bit. A couple of years later, I was saying, like, Dean, you know, you and we, meaning Net Objectives, uh, have done a lot of the large-scale transformations around. Uh, maybe we ought to work together. And that's when he told me a bit more about SAFE. I didn't know the details up until that point. And I said, oh, what I really liked about it was, in their case, they call it portfolio program and team. And it was the first documented, because we hadn't really documented our approach, it was the first documented, reusable framework that anybody could use. And, and this, it, you know, there were things in it even from the beginning. I was like, well, I would do this differently and I would do that differently. Uh, but the framework part I thought was brilliant. And I was attracted to it because, you know, at the time there were two other approaches I knew of. Uh, one was the, you know, basically a scrum of scrums approach across all the organization. And Again, I have no doubt that works when you have a functional organization. But you know, well, I'm a I'm a consultant. Let's just let's just say it like it is. Functional organizations that have everything working 100%, they don't need consultants. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to get called into that. My job is making good people better and and helping helping them see how to migrate. So so I didn't really see much hope in the bottom-up approach. And uh, because I tried it years ago and I couldn't get it to work. And I hadn't seen much success of it. And here was an approach that took a holistic approach. Now, Kanban method, 
was intended to also, uh, you know, kind of do this. But what I found with the Kanban method, I think it's brilliant as a method of Kaizen approach. But what it doesn't attend to is is organizational structure. It doesn't attend to the ecosystem, as I call it. And and actually, uh, in conversations with David, he said David Anderson. He actually said it's orthogonal to that. The Kanban method is about making change in the workflow, and it's not about looking at creating teams and ecosystems. But I had learned that Scrum, what Scrum really gave us, in my opinion, besides uh, uh, obviously agile iterations and things, is the notion that a cross-functional team is extremely powerful. Although, ironically, I got that from Stephen Denning, who's not a software guy, but I kept running across him at agile conferences and saying, Stephen, why are you here? And he would tell me, and why are you with Scrum? And he would tell me that. And it was like this appreciation for cross-functional teams. I said, oh, that's really interesting. I'll be candid. I hadn't quite appreciated that until a few years ago. So now as we were going to scale, it's like, but you still need these really beautiful units at the bottom, but you need them embedded in a matrix or a framework of it working. So that's what really got me. It seemed to be the right paradigm from a structural point of view. Uh, so that's, that's what got me in, and I think that's also the good. And now I'll riff into what, what, I won't say it's not what I don't like about SAFE because it's not about SAFE. It's about the way SAFE is used. I don't like the way SAFE is used in a lot of cases. But, you know, I've got a, I, I could say the same thing about Scrum. I love Scrum. I just don't like the way it's used. Scrum at a team level is just, just an amazing, uh, to me, uh, breakthrough in how to do things. And, of course, you can add to it like you're supposed to. As a framework, we add lean thinking and Kanban into it. To some extent, safe can be done one of two ways, and it's predominantly done as an implementation, and that's what I think get people nervous about it, and and rightfully so, I think. But it's not safe's problem; it's the way it's being implemented. It's problem. So here's what I mean by safe implementation: if what you do is you do a kind of buy the book, and you just say, um, okay, we're gonna we're gonna do this training, this training, this training, and this training, and then we're gonna organize our programs and we're going to do the best we can to get them to be true feature teams because that is the advice and that's good advice uh and then what we'll do is we'll uh, just have everybody else in component teams around our architecture as best we can and then we just train everybody and get them started see now we're doing safe uh now you will get some benefit out of this by the way i mean i've never seen it not get you some benefit but the question is what where are you? You're now implemented something. So the moment you get it implemented and done, where's your incentive to improve? And most of that incentive is gone uh, because you were there to implement something. And uh, you, so you get a 20, 30% improvement, and then you kind of get stuck. But tell you what, 20 to 30%, it's nothing to sneeze at, so I'm not saying this bad. But you've taken the pain away, and now people get kind of settled into this how to deal with bigger structures. And you actually haven't made the organization agile, you've just made it a little better. And, and, and I think this is almost an inherent trap when you go into it as an implementation. Now, I know why this happened. See, I, this, is, this I didn't appreciate when I first started, although I had some concerns about it. But you know, a variety of safe people have told me this, people who do safe. The problem is that if you go in it as an implementation, then they, people don't know what they should do when things are different or when things don't quite work. So you've got this dilemma. 
and and safe can be used in a good way, but it's it it's it it falls on one side of the dome typically when I see it implemented. Again, not a failure of safe. So here's the dilemma, and this is I think the really interesting problem in agile today. I think it's always been the problem, but at scale it's worse. And the reason safe has expanded so much is it solves it at least solves one half of the dilemma. And the dilemma is this. We all say one size doesn't fit all. I hear that so much. Yeah, one size doesn't fit all, but then look around and you'll see one size is all that's being offered. You know, and that's kind of a damning statement, but I'll stand by that because that's about what I see most of the time. Well, we do Scrum or we do Kanban method or we do Safe. And you do Safe by the book or you do Kanban method by the book. You know, and you hear things like, well, that's not what's in Scrum org or that's not what's over there. That's, that's, that's one size fits all. That's, that's, well, that's following the, that's following the rules as opposed to interpreting the values and applying uh, different mechanisms. Because you know your story when you opened the podcast was very pr- pragmatic, where you took um, a very interesting approach by looking at all of the, the the discrete agile brands that have come out. And it seems to me that as the technology has pushed you forward, you've taken pieces of each one of those brands um, and and pushed it together and and built you know your own method. And and my question is, you mentioned Steve Denning and um, and you know the people using Safe correctly or incorrectly. He he wrote a blog post on Forbes saying that Safe was just frankly not agile. That the problem wasn't the people. That the framework itself forced people out of an agile methodology. That it just put a little bit of a minor agile wrapper around a waterfall process. Um, and of course, as you would expect in our community, that sparked a big religious war. Um, you know, is safe agile? Is it not agile? I'm wondering what your opinions on that are, or, or if it even matters if safe is agile or not. Well, I think it matters. I don't think it matters if we label it as agile or not agile, because there's a lot of diversity about even what is Agile. You know, there's a large percentage of the people who think the Agile Manifesto defined Agile. And although I think it was amazing work that was done with the Agile Manifesto, I mean, I think it's, I think it's kind of silly to say something that's about it learning and adjusting and all that should be defined by a 15-year-old document. Uh, so to me, Agile is how are you able to respond and learn and grow better and, and again, I mean, I, I haven't read that article. I, I should, because I really respect Steve. And I, can say, I would say that the framework, uh, I guess the question is maybe it's how you interpret the framework. Because, and, and do you apply it in the right place? So it's like you say, you take it out of the book. That's right. But why do people do that? So, so if you've got the way you want to think about a framework or save, is do I actually have something big I need to move? I see people applying safe for small things. Like I got 50 people on a team and let's do safe because I can't figure out how to get scrum and scrums to work. Well, 50 people is actually too small for safe. It's too heavy. There are other ways to get uh, 50 people working together in an agile way, you know, shared, shared backlogs, things like that. We did that over, over a decade ago. It works quite fine, very lightweight. So if you are in a... Using safe as a framework, I can actually see why Steve would say it's not agile. Because if what you view it as is this monolithic framework that you put on top of a monolithic structure, and now you have all these people who have to align with each other to figure it out, and you're planning things way in advance, the guidance now is again on the framework. 
And, and from that perspective, and that's probably the judgment he's making it from, I would say if that's what he's saying, I would agree with that. However, does safe have to be used that way? And I would suggest not. Um, see, what is, what is, let's just stop for a second. Let's say what is agile? Because I think this is really the core, and this is where there's this divisiveness. And, and I'll warn you guys, I've, I've got what technically is called attention deficit disorder. I happen to prefer calling So do we. Okay, good. Every single guest has. Yeah, it's, it's, well. it's, it's a common thread. <laughs> it's a common thread, good. Well, I actually, I don't like to call what I think is one of my biggest strengths a disorder, because I, <laughs> I, I think it is one of my biggest strengths. My mind is always buzzing around. And, you know, literally 20 years ago, I mean, I, I, mean, I literally thought I might have been going crazy uh, with the way I would connect things in my head. But once I got peace about it, one of the things I've learned is it's just my mind moves fast, and it's how I do a lot of the work I do. So I call it rapid mind movement, <laughs> RMM. <laughs> and, but I have to explain what RMM is because that's not a standard phrase. So I have RMM, and, uh, and when we have company meetings, and I'm doing one right now, as a matter of fact, they see how many they say, "Oh, that's a squirrel, Alan," meaning like I'm just riffing on something that's totally unrelated. So, so yeah, I, this might be a squirrel here, but. Uh, so what is Agile? What is Agile? And I would suggest that this is uh, not our target. And it's, I think, one of the challenges. There's a lot of good stuff in Agile. But, you know, I mean, you know, respecting people. But, you know, the reality is, well, what company have you ever gone into where the values on the wall says, we're going to make money and we don't care what it does to our people? I mean, I have seen zero of those. Uh, I see respect people, everybody says respect people. So having it as a value stated doesn't mean anything. The question is, what are you doing about it? And the real question is, how do you get there? And I can remember back, I don't know, 2003 or so, it was one of the early scrum gatherings. There were about 50 of us. And there was a lot of frustration in the room at the gathering because we had all had, had success at some level, and now we were running into the trust level. It was like people, you know, our clients weren't trusting us. Management wasn't trusting the teams. And, oh, I can still, re I can still remember it. Uh, you know, Diane Larson and Esther Derby were leading this circle event. We were all at the end of the event, and, and Diane was walking around, and we were all kind of uh, uh, just kind of checking out, you might say. I mean, check out, I shouldn't say it that way. It sounds like, like we, we've zoned out. But, I mean, like we're saying how we were and what we were thinking to kind of and the and the program, and I remember people were talking about trust and like, wow, we just need to figure out how to get trust. And I remember thinking to myself that you know, if we're waiting for trust, we're going to wait a long time because you don't build trust by saying I trust you; you build trust by action. So the question was this, by the way, not a coincidence. This was a little bit before the whole lean thing with us came out because the question was. What do you do to build trust, not how do you get trust? And those are two different things. In other words, what action? What do you have to take action on? How do you reorganize people to build trust? Now, Scrum is really good in building trust at the team level because you're cross-functionally all working together. How do you create that organizational structure to build trust across an organization? And Scrum gives little advice in my way from an action point of view, just saying, well, we're just going to start working together Scrum of Scrums. It doesn't work unless you have trust. It doesn't work unless you have a common goal. But Lean does that. How does Lean do it? Lean does it by focusing on not the team, 
which is where a lot of Agile is focused on. Look at the Agile Manifesto. It mentions the team something like 18 times or something. Look at how many times it mentions management. You want to take a guess? None. doesn't mention management at all. Who's responsible for an ecosystem in an organization is management. Now, I'm not saying they should command and control it. No, I didn't say that. But they need to work with the teams to create the ecosystem that's needed. And why? What's the point? What's the goal? What's the objective? Well, to create more value that the organization delivers. So how do you get business value? Meaning business value and customer value are not exactly the same thing. If I have a customer, I can give them a million dollars of value and there's another product that would get only $100,000 of value, which is more customer value. Well, you could say the million, unless I got 10,000 customers. And then it's the smaller one I could do more times. So we want to really be driving, in my opinion, from business value, which is includes customer value, includes things like risk, compliance. You know, you have to look at the cost of delay. Uh, so you, you want to deliver business value, realize it actually, not just deliver it, because that, that's another issue. It's not just when you get paid, it's when you realize the value. And you want to focus on business value realization quickly, sustainably, predictably. And to me, that's business agility. And that's really what we, when we talk about agile, that's what we mean. How do you get that business agility? And by setting up systems and structures for that, that's how you get people to trust each other. That's how you get people working in a good environment. Because I'll tell you, I've been around thousands and thousands and thousands of devs over my career. It's now like 46 years. And almost all of them, and I mean like take out 10 out of thousands, almost all of them were primarily, that I knew, are primarily about adding value to the customer, adding value in a solid way. And they feel better and they're happier when that happens. So... I don't have to focus on them. I have to focus on the system they're in so they can be uh, get this value out. They're already motivated. I don't need to do anything with that. But if you put them in the wrong system, then they're not going to get good results because systems will squash people. Now, they have to have something to do with it. And I think this is the issue now when it comes to safe. So I, I am kind of segueing back to this. But this is the big difference, I think, between, I guess, lean thinking and maybe agile thinking in the classic sense. Lean people think people are incredibly important. They really just are important. And that they need to help self-direct and self-organize, but that you get things going well for them by focusing on the system because that's what's going to enable them to do their good job. So let's come back to the thing about safe and the framework, and is the framework inherently bad? Well, it depends why you put the framework in. If you put the framework in, temple on a structure, Within people can work, but they have no say on that structure. Well, I would say that's probably not a good thing. And that's also not lean if you implement it that way, by the way. But if you say, what's the framework part of SAFE? See, most people don't do that. Most people don't distinguish between the framework part of SAFE and what I would call the default practices of SAFE. In fact, I don't know anybody who does it besides us. That's how we talk about it. I, Actually, did a, I've done blogs and I've done webinars on it, but I don't see much about it. We view SAFE as a true framework with default practices. And what that means is you can adjust things as you go and, and everything can be learned. And those default practices include who makes decisions on things and, and uh, you know, how do you coordinate, what's, what's like the intent? What's the intent of this practice? And then, well, if you want to change the intent of the practice, go ahead and change the intent of the practice. 
So, so if you don't take that attitude, I can actually see why Stephen would say what he does. I know a lot of people have lasted safe, and, and if it's implemented as this holistic, not holistic, well, it is kind of, if it's implemented as this holistic answer, and here's what you do, and bam, put it on, I don't like that myself. But that's not how we do it at Net Objectives. So, uh, you know, we kind of maybe uh, walk a fine line, are we doing safe or not? And I'd say, well, yeah, I think we are. I mean, we use the safe terminology, we use programs, you know, programs, uh, I mean, pro portfolio programs, teams, we use value stream notion, but we aren't rock solid into doing it by the book because I've never really seen that work as well. Now, I wanted to bring this to, to I, I'm not saying let's get off this topic, but I want to tell you where this is leading to is why is safe so popular then and what problem are they solving? Because, okay, let's, let's face it. Dean is one of the best marketing guys I know. But let's also face it, you can't market crap. I'm sorry. Uh, it's, there's got to be some value. There's got to be something. I, I beg to differ. There is cherry Coke, you know. I like cherry Coke. <laughs> I, I admit defeat on this one, yes. Uh, but but no, you, can, you can market crap. But the question is, why has it been so popular? See, nobody asked that. Why has it been so popular? So I think that's another interesting next question after we... If, if we've not settled on this one, we, let's continue. But that's because that's an interesting question. See, that's what I've been asking myself is why are people so violently opposed to it and why is it so popular? Because then you get into some really interesting insights. I think safe is popular because it fills a void correctly or incorrectly. I don't really weigh in the way Denning has. Um, I, I, I think it fills a void for scaling agile outside of the team, the, the dev room. And ultimately, though, I feel that less and safe are bridges to more lean practices and, uh, you know, customer development from like Steve Blank and things like that inside of the organization um, as opposed to the entire organization. But I think to answer your question, it's popular precisely because it's, um, it's, it's filling some type of void. Yeah, but it, it fills a void. Uh, you know, there are other things out there trying to fill voids now, too. There's, there's a less and Nexus and, uh, and, and DAD. Right. I mean, so they're, they're trying to fill that same void. So obviously the market has spoken like, hey, there's a void. And as you said, Dean and Dean's a good marketer, right? So I think the combination of being early, being a good marketer and filling a void made safe, you know, super popular, um, you know, just from, from my view there. Yeah, that's what, that's what most people think. So here's, here's the problem with answers. They get you to stop looking because you have an answer. So I'm go. I want to go further than that. What's the void they're filling, and why is <clears throat> why is it that safe has filled the void? If it's really not that good, then why is it still so popular? Why hasn't there been uh, uh, you know a backlash on it? And maybe maybe one's coming. You know you can say, but but I think it's a deeper issue, and I think it actually gets to the heart of what I think really is what's next for agile. So. It's a, it's, a, it's a good segue to that. See, I think the reason is that it's been so popular. Safe provides an answer. It's like that's part of the way he fills the void. Is Here's an answer. You have this problem, and Safe is a methodology, a framework that fills that problem. It gives you a starting point. And if it's applied that way, I think, it's, I think it can be dangerous, but it doesn't have to be applied that way. In other words, in other words is it applied by the book that it's an answer, but why is that so popular? It's because it makes people feel comfortable. You don't have to think, here's an answer, I just do this. 
How many times have you seen that, by the way, in Scrum, where people just Scrum in and and then it kind of bogs down, but people are going back to the Scrum guide. Right. Or any or any methodology for that matter. Human, human behavior by default is going to go back to that kind of list of rules and checkboxes. Any methodology. Yeah, I'm not. I'm, yeah, yeah, yeah. See that that's the approach that doesn't work. And what I would what I would suggest is, but but what you want to notice is that people want an answer. Now I used to just get upset with this, to be honest. Uh, I would be like, well, people shouldn't want an answer. They should think their way out of this. They ought to they ought to be thinking about it. I, I ought to. Give them all the principles. And that's actually what I did for a very long time with, without a great success. I mean, every now and then we'd have great success. I mean, we'd help our clients. But I can remember from about 2004 to about 2010, oh, that was mostly the approach I took. It was like, well, look, I'm going to get people to think this through. And I would attract. We would attract people who wanted to think it through. And the, those who wanted to think it through, I would work with. And those who kind of wanted an answer, Alan Chetelawada, who actually created a lot of our methods. You know, I get a lot of credit for it because I blog, but I keep giving him credit because he actually came up with the stuff. I just watched him and learned. Alan had an interesting way of, and we've done, he's done, oh, I don't know, half a dozen or more, very, very large scale, I mean thousands, uh, starting from like the 2005 up till now, very large organizations. And the way he did it was actually by giving them an answer, and then he was there and he would cultivate the next answer, and then the next answer, and the next answer. So he was kind of like transforming organizations by basically giving them an answer, but then helping them learn what the next answer, what's the next step. So he was always guiding from lean. And, and he's done very well, and his method is great. We still offer this. The problem is there's one of him. <laughs> and that's not, that's not a scaled methodology for a consulting company by any means, but if you got to, you know, if you want to learn how to be business driven and you want to figure out what's really the most important thing and you want to take your strategy uh, all the way down through deployment and, and out in the field, he's your guy. Uh, so I'm the CEO of Net Objectives and I'm saying, well, I can have a small salon boutique rather style company around Allen and offer training. And we did that for years. That's basically what we did for a while. And, and then it was like, man, there's just too much good stuff here. We've got to figure this out. How do you get this to the masses? And the problem is, how do you get it to the masses when they want an answer? And this frustrated me for years because it's not my tendency. I'm, I'm more of an abstract problem-solving type guy. But I, I'm thankful for having a lot of really cool people in my life. And I'll just shout out one of them is Kurt Hibbs at Boeing. Really smart guy. He's written a few good books. And he's, he's more pragmatic than me, <laughs> let me tell you. Uh, and I would talk to him about what I was trying to do. He said, he said Al, that, that'll fail. And, and I would I would just resisted this for like years, I think. And then one conference uh, about four years ago, I, I told him something about, you know, I think it was the beginning stages of this scrum Kanban mixture I was thinking of. And he said, that won't work, Al. People want to know what to do. And for some reason, he'd been telling me this for years, but for some reason, I actually heard it. And I said, Kurt, you're right. But in the next instant, once I accepted that, see, I'd always been trying to get people to not take an answer, but to learn how to think. And the moment I accepted the fact that, no, that's what people want. They really do at the beginning. They, most people want an answer. And I'd say that's why SAFE's been popular. Then the question is, okay, that's insufficient. What's next? And that's a, that's a great segue into our our question from the show 
the premise of our show is what is next? What's in store for Agile next from, in your opinion? Yeah, so this is, it's solving this dilemma. What's next? Is how do you get them started with an answer? And then how do you get them to know how to grow and get off the guide or to get off the, the document or the book? And, you know, people have attested to, uh, like, Shuha Ri, which I personally dislike the metaphor. Shuha Ri makes sense in the physical martial arts. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, it sometimes makes me feel like we're fighting somebody uh, when we're building software, but it's a lot different. You know, it's, it's like uh, The Karate Kid, I thought was a really great movie for a lot of reasons, but one of the things it did is it, it did demonstrate in the physical world how you could do something over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, have no idea why it's useful, and then at the end when your sensei tells you how to use it, you can apply it. And, and learning moves that way actually can work. Uh, but in the software world, understanding what's going on is very important. So you've got this kind of dilemma. I started out saying about <clears throat> one size fits all. Well, here's your answer is kind of the one size fits all. And... But now that, that, at some point, how do you learn with it? And this is where now principles come in. So the notion of how do we do the equivalent of shuhari in the right way, I think this is what's next. And the question is this, how do I get started based on where people are? This is one of the nice things about the Kanban method, is you can apply it anywhere you want to. Look where people are, start where you are, do small transition. The limitation of that method, in my opinion, is sometimes you can make some big changes right up front just by understanding some basic lean principles. I mean, I've gone in sometimes, uh, I've gone in sometimes in companies where they're struggling and they were actually doing scrum well, and, and, uh, but they weren't organized properly to do scrum at scale. And literally, after two, three days' work, they just reorganized like a 150-person organization based on that. And then, bam, just like that, they got value. So sometimes you can make big changes. Sometimes you can't make big changes. That's part of the reality of where you are. So you've got these two dilemmas that work against each other. And this is what Net Objectives is up to. And this is actually what we're working on right now with a couple of clients. And I'm hoping in a few months to have it be a general product. But it's this idea of how do you see where to start? And then how do you see how to adjust? And I'll give you an example. What got me started on this was actually this whole scrum butt stuff, because I hate that. Hated that phrase. Because it's it's derogatory. I mean, people doing scrum butt, you know, it's like you, you can't... Well, everyone's doing scrum butt. That's really what it comes down to. Meaning that every, every, everyone's doing scrum butt because they're applying the values of scrum and they're, and they're modifying it to, to fit their existing situation, which is the correct way to go. Exactly. But when it first came out, it wasn't done in that the way you said it is good. Yeah, here, start with Scrum, then change it. But when you when the term first came out, it was in a very derogatory manner. It was like it was talking about people, oh, people aren't having success because they're doing Scrum butt. And we're like, well, we do Scrum, but we don't do iterations cleanly because it's too much cost to close down the sprint, it takes too much time to bring it up. And when the term Scrum butt was done, it was it was actually phrased as a negative. Well, we're not doing scrum. They're not doing scrum well. And that's why they're having problems. Because see, one of the rules of, of of scrum is that you remove all your impediments. Well, that may or may not make sense. In fact, uh, it, and now it's a good idea. I mean, I understand why. In other words, if I'm being interrupted all the time, that's an impediment. Well, that's a good thing to remove. Uh, if I get where I don't have a cross functional team. 
uh, that's a that's an impediment. That's a good thing to get a cross-functional team. So most of the impediments that come along, you should probably be getting rid of. But some impediments you just can't get rid of or don't make any sense. And it's funny, the very first Scrum project I was on, the very first Scrum thing I did was working with a small team that was supporting an engineering group. And the engineering group was uh, something like a 1,000 uh, uh, engineers where they had 10 metallurgists supporting them. And the engineers weren't trying to be doing Scrum, but if they were, you'd have a thousand people with ten uh, of a special, a special, specific skill, and you couldn't create, you know, out of these thousand people, you couldn't create a hundred Scrum teams because you had only ten people there, and you didn't want to cross-train these guys. These were PhDs, eight years' experience, extremely expensive. So right away, I saw that in some cases, there are certain people that are just needed to cross multiple teams, and how do you do that? And you can't remove that impediment and still have cross-functional teams. So, you know, that's where, like, the blend of Kanban and, and Scrum is good. But anyway, come back to this. So the idea is, I agree with you. You want to do Scrum, and if you extend it, sometimes it's good. And if you do Scrum and you're just not following the intention and you're abandoning it because you don't have the discipline or something like that, that's not good. But what's good and what's not good? See, people don't talk about this too much. Well, I got interested in this several years ago because, as, as you mentioned, I am very pragmatic and I'm trying to figure out what to do. So I thought of this whole thing because it was usually iterations I heard a lot. Well, we do, and also the biggest apparent difference between Scrum and Kanban is iterations, that Scrum has them and Kanban doesn't. But that's actually not the biggest difference. Uh, the others are just the holistic thinking, visibility, explicit workflow, things like that. But anyway... Coming back to the iterations, I thought about it and said, okay, iterations, sprints, these are good things, but why are they good things? See, in other words, what's the practice, but what's the intention of the practice? So the, the intention of, of the practice of an iteration is actually, it does a lot, it does a lot of things. Uh, so the practice of, of, of iterations, what's the intention Okay, well, first of all, they provide cadence, you know, like for planning, for closing things down, for doing demos, like every two weeks. If we're doing two-week sprints, we, I'm not talking about a startup or a start down. I'm just saying, you know, this is the time you make sure the product backlog is up to date for us to pull from. Make sure at this time is when we'll do demos. That's just a bing, 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 bing timing. It also is a, uh, it, it gives a, a, a framework, I mean, a, a time frame to figure out what's your velocity. Well, every two weeks we'll see how we're doing. It, it provides a lot of discipline though. Notice how actually having a sprint end, well, I gotta be done. You know, developers are notorious for being 90% done when they're really not. Uh, they're not lying, they just kind of kid themselves. I have a lot of experience in this one. So you're either done or you're not at the end of the sprint. Uh, it forces, that forces smaller stories into play. Uh, that forces devs and testers, if you have those different roles, I know you're not supposed to in Scrum, but let's be real, you often have that. In other words, even though we don't have different roles, we just have the development team. We do have different skills in the development team, and some of them might be devving, and some of those might be testing. So, so if, you, if you look at this intention of a sprint, you see that there's a lot of stuff about cadence, planning, Discipline being provided, smaller stories, creates greater visibility and what's happening. This is all good stuff. I mean, it's all great stuff. But is the sprint the only way to get it? That's my question. Well, the answer is no. Uh, 
And then the question becomes, well, is the sprint the best way to get it? And the answer is not always. So now you have this different mindset. You've got to say, well, maybe I started with Scrum because I didn't have the discipline. And it's, it forced that on me and it forced me to get smaller stories and it forced me to work better as a team and it forced me to do all this great stuff. But do I really need sprints now? And the answer is no. But do I need those intentions? And the answer is yes. Releasing and getting things out into production and, and so on. All sorts of stuff. Yeah. And smaller stories, working together. So now what you have is, and this is something I've got, in, we talk about this in our Lean class, you know, which is again our team level stuff. But we're actually building what we call a transformation workbook, which actually talks about this. So, oh, so here's a practice. Uh, you're having troubles with it. Here's the intention of that practice. Now, what other principles can apply here if this practice isn't working that I might think about? You know, like some of the principles about that support iterations are uh, cross-functional teams are good because I don't have to wait. You know, I don't have handoffs. The person's right there. I can work with them. So I remove the delays. Smaller stories are good because I get feedback faster. So the question is, well, if this isn't working as, as a hard iteration, is there another alternative? Of course, if you look at Kanban, you can now see, well, I can do Kanban as long as I attend to small stories, as long as I still attend to cross-functional teams, as long as I attend to getting the cycle time from when I started to when it's done short. And when I start thinking about it this way, I can say, well, you know what? So here are the two scrum butts. Here's the bad scrum butt. Yeah, we did scrum, but we, we found it just cost too much to uh, get everything done at the end of the sprint. So we allow the work to cut over to the next sprint. The testers finish it up. And uh, we didn't really like all that planning and all that uh, shutting down. So we do scrum, but we don't do iterations. Notice there's no intention in that. There's just, I have a lot of problems and woe is me and I'll make it easy on myself. Okay, now let's say it another way. Yeah, we do Scrum, but what we found is we were really already attending to small stories. We were uh, making sure things got done as soon as they can. Uh, we basically have a continuous uh, planning cycle where we just take things off the top and we never start that many things. So if we get interrupted, it really doesn't matter because uh, we can just finish the one or two things we're working on and then do what, what's up next. So having to have a planning cycle where we say you can't interrupt us. Uh, we've just managed interruptions. Uh, so we found that we didn't really need the plan. We didn't really need the end. And uh, so we just abandoned it because it saved us some time to do that. Okay, see that's Scrum Butt. So what we have noticed is that if you take the attitude, if you take the attitude that there is an understanding out there, and yes, people need to know where to start. So what you need to do is figure out a way, how do you get people to start? And how do you give them a starting point? But then how do you guide them? So this is the transformation roadmap or workbook, transformation workbook we're building. And what it is, is it basically at the start, it's kind of a maturity assessment of where you are from the business agility point of view and from the agile practices point of view. And then you look at guardrails, like what are the things I should be doing? Like I should be collaborating, I should be driving from business value, I should have everything be visible. In other words, what's the agreement everybody makes? And now you say, well, here's where we are, here's the agreements, how do we move forward? And then you look at this, uh, you know, these issues of things like what's, what does it mean to be doing business agile or management agility or team agility? 
which is where most people focus. There's also technical agility, even DevOps agility for that matter. And then when something goes wrong, instead of just saying remove the impediment, you have this conversation. Here's my principle. What's the intention? What are the, excuse me, here's my practice. Here's my intention. What are principles are underneath it? What alternatives do I have? Well, this whole thing, we actually have it in our, in a, we actually have this in our kind of implicit knowledge in our company. We're actually in the process of writing this up and having it being navigable and that'd be the workbook. And uh, I think it's pretty exciting because it means that you could use something like you could, you could use safe as a tool in it. You could use probably anything as a tool in it. Uh, but it gives you a way to start where you are best to start, it gives you something very concrete, and then now allows people to actually kind of navigate their system. And it's something we've, we've got a new product we're just starting in the next few weeks, but we're going to integrate these two. We call it a coaching academy. What we want to do is train people in using this method. So it's really a method on how to think based on basically 15 years of agile experience. Right, right. Thanks for sharing that perspective with us, Al. It's it's really been great talking with you and, and getting your insights into where Agile's been and where it's heading for the future. So just want to thank you for taking the time to be on the show. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. Next time on Agile Next, we have Ken Fritz. A big Agile Next thank you to our sponsors, Fresco Capital and Applebrook Consulting. Visit Fresco Capital at frescocapital.com and Applebrook Consulting at apple-brook.com. We hope to see you next week on Agile Next. In the meantime, check out our website at agilenext.tv. 